Okay, let's uh, take our Bibles and find uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. Our Bible reading was from uh, Acts chapter 9, and we'll probably go back to that at some point or maybe flick back and forth a little bit. So if you want to keep Acts chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, You know, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is somewhat or sometimes likened to the wind. And uh, wind is not something we think much about. Because of the way we live, in many ways, we've been defrauded from certain understandings because we have, we've come to a place where a lot of things that God has put here that are meant to be significant to us uh, are passed over as if, you know, we don't really need them. But, of course, uh, wind is important for lots of reasons. Uh, Usually, before you get rain, you get wind. And so the first thing you'll notice if rain is coming, usually, is the trees start to move. And it's an an indicator that a refreshment is coming. So the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. And I'm not preaching on this. The Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. Uh, And as I've been meditating on this just personally... I've been thinking about the fact that when we come into church, uh, we feel the breeze on our face. Uh, when we come into church, we, we, it's a, we, feel, we feel the presence of the wind, or at least I do. And, uh, and what I believe you ought to do, when people of old time knew that, you know, if the wind was present, you should harness it. And so, you know, whatever that meant, hoist the sail, the wind is here. You know, get, get the ride now because the wind is present. And uh, because Jesus said the wind comes and goes and you know not how that happens. And uh, the wind is not something that we can harness and keep in a bottle. It, it, it comes, it goes. We don't always know why did it come then and why did it leave then? And how come today it came from this direction uh, but another time it comes another way? And we don't understand that, and, and, and that's just God, that's the working, the Holy Spirit is uh, like that, but, but I just think if, if the pastor gets up and says, sing the song again, I just take that as the moving of the wind, that we're just meant to receive that, and, and uh, double down on that and say, you know, and, and I, I believe this, that when you feel the wind, don't, 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 uh, don't rush away from it. Because soon enough it can change direction and you won't feel it anymore. So, so I would just encourage you as best you can, when you feel the wind at church, don't, don't be doing this. And uh, I mean, if you, you know, I'm just, just, just go with it. Just, just be glad that for that, that moment the breath of God is here, the wind. And uh, I might just turn my face into that while it's here and just gain the benefit of that. And church is a place where we can do that, where the Holy Spirit does come and move. Uh, the church is a wonderful thing. It's more wonderful than we realise. It's more wonderful than we presently appreciate. Uh, at the conclusion of our age, church will not be like this anymore. This, this was just it is given for our times. The Jews will revert back to their ways of worship. But the church was given to us as a special time and the Holy Spirit does come and move amongst us. Uh, you're more likely to hear from God today in church than any other time through this past week. Now, you, you, God will speak to you for sure. You read your Bible. 
uh, when you uh, when you prayerful, if you listen and just stop talking for a while, he can speak to you then. But truthfully, it's in church that many times God speaks to us. It's in church that God says to you, I want you to fix this up. It's in church that God says, I'm talking to you about this. It's in church that you get the leadings, the big big leadings of life often happen to you while you're sitting in church. And uh, so, you know, relish that and take that for what it is. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, uh, the sound desk sometimes asks me for titles uh, because they just don't know what to title them sometimes. And uh, so the, uh, the title would be Paul and the Basket. So we're going to be looking at the incident in Paul's life that we read about in Acts chapter 9 where Paul was uh, in a basket and lowered down outside of the window to uh, escape uh, and leave the city of Damascus. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I guess I'm given to noticing things like this uh, because, one, I know that when God puts them in the Word of God, they're always significant. There's nothing in your Bible that is a filler before you get to a point. Uh, everything in your Bible is a point. And now, it is not always revealed to you all at one time any more than you, know, you could consume all the food in your house at one time. Uh, you eat till you're full and uh, then a period of time elapses and you eat again. And so as you, as you read your Bible, you're coming across many points, but God will illuminate certain ones to you at certain times. And so the story that we read about in Acts chapter 9, uh, one of the reasons that uh, it grabs my attention is any time that something comes up more than one time, uh, that, is, that should provoke you to stop and say, okay, why was that mentioned again? So any time the Spirit of God brings up something a second time, and this would be a pattern that I know Pastor Fisher and others follow, that, that when you get a second reference of something, or, or sometimes more than that, uh, then that's something worth pausing over and saying, Lord, what, what, is, what is this about? What does this mean? All right? Now, uh, did you, did, let's, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I'm going to pick up from verse number 30. This is the second mention of the time that Paul was lowered out the window in a basket. So some people tied some ropes to the basket. He got in it. He was lowered down the outside of the city walls so he could make his escape. Verse number 30 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, If I must needs glory... I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Atis, the king, kept the city of Damascus with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall, and escaped his hands. So that's our second, our second re- re- reference in our Bible to what happened in Acts chapter 9 that we had our first Bible reading from. Um, we think that Paul probably was converted around about AD 34, about that area. The incident in Damascus happened 
sometime AD 36, some say 37, and we're, we're all guessing, but as best we can date things. Uh, so this happened uh, uh, somewhat earlier on after Paul's conversion. You remember that he was on his way to Damascus to find those who believed on Jesus and arrest them and bring them back in bonds uh, to Jerusalem to face trial. It's hard for us to understand that some places do not differentiate between religious law and civil law. And so this was a culture in this day where if you broke the religious law, you also broke laws of the land. And so you could be put in bonds uh, for simply something that was religious and are brought up before courts and punished accordingly. Uh, the same thing does happen in many countries in the world today. It's just foreign to us as Australians. It's not foreign to people who live in Pakistan. It's not foreign to people who live in India, uh, who, who, where a family might lose their life for eating the wrong kind of meat. Uh, it's not foreign to people there. It's not foreign to people who live in uh, Burma or Miramar or Pema, Satya say. Uh, where there is very strong interaction. It's not foreign from people living in other places where religious law and civil law almost seem to be one. And as Australians, we need to understand that better, uh, just to understand that. So Paul was going to Damascus to arrest those who had uh, called upon Christ. And of course, he gets uh, converted uh, along the way and uh, he's taken into the city and uh, the incident happens uh, in the, uh, where he's lowered in the basket outside the city walls of Damascus and he makes his escape. We'll flick back there maybe in a moment. Uh, but the Second Corinthians reading was probably written around AD 54 in that area. So why do I say that? Not, not, not to give dates to just uh, clutter your mind for you know, unnecessary data. Uh, but I give you the dates to say you probably are identifying maybe a 20-year or an 18-year gap between when, the when it first happened to him and then when he talks about it again some 18 or 20 years later. And I'm going to say to you that the reason uh, that that is significant is because of this. It never left his mind. He never forgot what had happened back there and all, all of that. It, it stayed with him. See, see, that was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, who was uh, very highly educated. Saul of, Saul of Tarsus, who is our Paul, Saul of Tarsus was uh, esteemed because of the very high level of his education. Uh, he sat at the feet of very learned people. He he qualified to get into the very best, most selective universities of the day. Uh, he, he was a Harvard man in his day. And uh, so he had very, very good education. Uh, because of that and because he'd no doubt come through the ranks, he was a very fine scholar. And uh, he had, uh, uh, had connections with very important people. 
and Paul would have been uh, someone that, that important people in government and in religious rule would have invited to their home. Uh, he would have been well-schooled in the customs or decorum of the day uh, in all of this. So he, here's a man who's really only known what it's like to be in the upper echelons of the who's who. And uh, that's significant because this matter of being lowered out of a window in a basket was a long way from his previous life. There was an element of humiliation to that. And I will, I will show you, uh, uh, we'll point to that in the scriptures here. It was his first experience of being the persecuted rather than the persecutor. Everything got inverted. Uh, Saul had always been the one who pursued others. And now he was the one being pursued. And he'd never tasted of that before. Uh, it was no doubt a, a humiliating experience for someone who was so strong and who had commanded respect from those who were influential in his day. A uh, undignified moment, perhaps. I remember there was a certain famous Queensland premier now gone who made the statement, one day a rooster, next day a feather duster. And um, Paul was tasting a little bit, a little bit of that. Uh, let me give you some application with the text because that's really what it's here for. Uh, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let's point out something to you here. Uh, prior to uh, verse number 30, Paul does speak extensively about his sufferings um, and about his reproaches. You pick that up from about verse 21. And uh, he goes down to list all the things that have happened to him uh, in his life, his beatings, his, his sufferings for Christ, uh, uh, all, that, all that he bore. And it's a very well-known passage in the Bible. And then he, he stops that. He stops, it's sort of, he underlines the idea of, well, that was my sufferings. That's the, that was the reproach I bore for Christ. Uh, this is all the things I've gone through. And then uh, he, he it sort of changes a little bit in verse 30 because he doesn't talk, he doesn't categorize what he's about to say as, as the previous thing. He says, it's uh, something which concerns my infirmities. And so he puts it in the category in verse number 30 of uh, an infirmity. Uh, 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 some people say he was embarrassed about it. Some people say that, uh, that this whole idea of, of fleeing the city that way uh, was, uh, was just something he, he didn't feel good about. Now, I don't think you can prove that. What you can say is that when he got to Jerusalem after sort of escaping that way... Some people doubted he was a real Christian. Sometimes we might do something in a moment of uh, stress or fear or maybe others tell us we should do this and, uh, and it casts doubt on is that the way a Christian would act? And I think Paul went through a bit of that. Uh, so they doubted he was a real Christian when he got to Jerusalem and 
and then he categorizes it in 2 Corinthians as an infirmity. He doesn't call it a suffering or a reproach. He separates it from those things and almost like, well, this was, uh, you know, something that happened that was sort of an infirmity. Now, whatever it was, uh, uh, picture, picture Paul uh, who is, you know, learned and, and uh, qualified and connected, at least, you know, up until he believed on Christ. Picture someone like that and the disciples who are in uh, Damascus who would have been the people who are being hunted. So now picture people, those disciples would, would not be in that category of the well-to-do. They would be people sort of somewhat fearful and they were particularly fearful when they knew that Saul of Tarsus was coming for them. So somehow what happened was uh, as Paul began to uh, preach the word of God, uh, uh, and illuminate from the scriptures how that Christ was the Christ, how Jesus of Nazareth was the Jewish Christ, and using the scriptures and and uh, and and there was no, they could not they couldn't answer that, and uh, in the Acts it says that Paul got stronger, and probably all of that was consistent with maybe Paul's thinking of how it would go in serving God. You know, a miraculous conversion. And now you use your gifts to, to do the work of God and you go from strength to strength. But actually, it was when he hit his strength that all these other things started happening. The humiliation came after his great strength. And somebody said, uh, you know, Paul knew they're waiting to kill you. And, of course, there were gates that came into a city, in and out. And during the day, the gates were opened and there would be a lot of in and out. But at night, to secure a city, the gates were closed. And everybody who came in and came out came through those gates. And uh, so they were the Jews who were wanting to kill Paul, uh, they were waiting at those gates or they had people waiting. And then they were, they were stalking him with the idea that we're going to harm him. And so somebody came up with the idea and they said, well, here's an idea. Uh, we'll get a basket, you know, a woven basket that would be used normally to carry fruit uh, or, you know, things you sell at a market, that kind of basket. They said, we'll get that and we'll tie ropes to it and you get in the basket and we'll lower you out the window. And can you imagine Saul? Can you imagine Saul? Saul, you know, so he gets in the basket. That's already humiliating. That's already a moment of, you know, what am I doing? And then they lowered him out the window. And uh, God would use it. God would use it. Our first thought is this. God prepares his vessels by shaping them fitly for those to whom they will be poured out. God will shape the vessel so it will be just the right vessel that he's going to use to pour that blessing out onto other people. So Paul was shaped... Because the very people that he was going to minister to and be, be our leader, our great model, uh, our great apostle, our, 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 
uh, our man who understood us. The very people that Paul would minister to in his life would be persecuted people. They would be people who were suffering for the cause of Christ. They would be people who were going to be cut off. They would be people that in the book of Hebrews, he would urge them, you can't go back because of your sufferings. Paul himself tasted of all of that. And uh, what God was doing was, was shaping perfectly the vessel for the very purpose that God was going to use it for. And this is what God does. Paul would know firsthand the feelings of those he was ministering to. Uh, I look back over the years of uh, serving the Lord in my life and I can identify it was never something that was a plan or a strategy or a, uh, it was never something I, I really recognised until long after it, it just happened over a lot of years. But I've looked back over many years of ministry and I've realised something that uh, though I be in different places, many times God has made me a father to the fatherless. You say you had a father. Everybody has a father or you're not here. But, 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 but God took the unique experiences of my life and God shaped me to meet people along the way uh, who would have somebody uh, come to them in that role. And it was never stated as such, uh, but it turned out a bit that way. Uh, I get many messages uh, on any given week uh, from the Thai people, and they've never heard me use that expression. They've never heard me teach it like you hear me teach it, uh, but they will send messages. They say, we are missing Father very much. Uh, they'll say, uh, uh, we, we, uh, uh, do you know that you are like our Father? Uh, we, we are of your spirit. And uh, uh, Suzanne said to me this week, she said, uh, I've really got close to so-and-so who got converted in a church recently. You know, she said the other day, she looks at you like a father. And I'm just saying that God will take you and all the things that make you uniquely you, your journey, your sufferings, your inner things that maybe you don't tell everyone, your wrestlings, your pains. God will take all of that and he uses those very things to shape you to be the perfect vessel that will pour out to others and be a blessing to others. I remember meeting Dorothy Long. I guess Dorothy's in heaven now. Dorothy was aged. I guess, I don't want to hurry her along if she's not, but she was, Dorothy was aged uh, back in uh, 1988 when I met her. And uh, uh, Dorothy, Dorothy had come from England. She was a, you know, a, a plump English lady uh, in, uh, in the, uh, as you, you know, as you would picture her, uh, elderly. And uh, Dorothy lived in Kedron. Dorothy had a flat in Kedron. And we were doing some ministry over there. And Dorothy came to church with another English lady, Amy Ashworth. I guess Amy was 80 and I do know that Amy is in heaven now. Actually, I was thinking of Amy the other day. I was thinking, 
I think Amy is running like a young girl. Do you, do you know there's no old people in heaven? Nobody's old. Do you know all the people who got older and older and it was getting harder and harder every day and, and they were just feeling age and if you're not there yet, it's coming. And, uh, you know, they were just, just contending with all of age and their body was weaker. You, do you know the moment those, those who died in Christ, do you know the moment they died, they weren't old anymore? You know, the moment they died, they felt as healthy as they ever felt in their whole life and a whole lot more. Do you know that, that, people, that people run in heaven and they smile a lot and they're joyful and they don't have any, uh, anything that holds them back and they don't have any inabilities. There's none of that. It's, uh, they're totally liberated. Amy Ashworth, I was thinking about Amy the other day. I thought, oh, Amy, will be, be, uh, she'll be running. You know, the Jack Chick comics didn't have it too far wrong. And, uh, but anyway, Amy, Dorothy Long came with Amy. Dorothy lived in a little apartment in Kedron. Dorothy had come from England. And uh, it might surprise you, but there was a day in the world where uh, mass shootings uh, were quite unheard of. And if it happened anywhere in the world, people were shocked. So Dorothy, Dorothy lived in a day uh, in England. She was... Uh, she had some children and, and her, Dorothy's story was that, and I didn't know this till after a while, Dorothy's story was that she went to visit her daughter uh, who was married to a man um, and uh, they lived in an English residence uh, and it was a, it was a fine uh, English summer day and uh, they were sitting outside uh, uh, having food and tea uh, Dorothy, oh, these people had children, they were, they were older adults, Dorothy was there, Dorothy's daughter, one of Dorothy's daughters, uh, and the husband, and, uh, and uh, Dorothy told me that, uh, and I remember I was shocked when Dorothy told me, uh, quite unexpectedly she named his name, uh, he went into the, into the house and he came out with a, a firearm, he came out with a rifle, and uh, without any uh, saying anything or any warning, he, he just turned the gun and uh, he shot Dorothy's daughter uh, right, right while she was present there. And can you imagine that, the loudness of, I don't know if you've been around the guns going off and, how, and the whole trauma of that and what you see. And, and then for a moment, he turned the gun to Dorothy. Uh, and then for whatever reason, he then turned the gun on himself. And uh, Dorothy was left sitting there uh, in the garden uh, with all of that. And she was uh, already, you know, she had grown up children who had children. And so Dorothy, Dorothy moved to Australia to uh, start again, whatever, you know, leave maybe some difficult memories behind. She came to Australia. When I met Dorothy, she's a lovely lady. And uh, she just was a good listener. And I was young in the ministry and really didn't know hardly anything. And, and Dorothy was sort of like a grandmother. I said, Dorothy, uh, just getting to know her, Dorothy, what, what do you do now? You're in your flat in Kedron. What do you do every day? She said, oh, I'm not home. I'm out most days. I said, oh, where, where do you go? And she said, oh, uh, you know, for some years now, uh, I'm part of a group that supports victims of violence. Mm. 
people who've lost people in violent circumstances. And she said, I go and I sit beside them in the courts, sometimes for months, and I just sit there with them and, uh, and, I, and I help them. Uh, mm. Now, I don't think what happened to Dorothy was any plan of God to do something like that so Dorothy could be used. But I do want to say this, any more than I want to call some of the things that happened in your life, I don't want to say they're good things, but I do want to say that the good God takes bad things and uses them unto good ends. And I want to say that what you've been through and maybe what you're going through uh, is shaping you, and you already know that, but God, God will use that and desires to use that for good things. And I, I want to encourage you to, to, to just let God direct you and use you. You don't need to go on any mad mission to find your place. God will, it will come to you. But, but, but use who you are. Use who you are. Use your journey, your story, just to help, to help other people. Paul went through that. Uh, now Paul the persecutor is Paul the persecuted. Uh, Paul is now facing, uh, going through things that are uh, humiliation. You know, uh, Paul uh, says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, he talks about his sufferings. And he uses the word more, more in labours and more abundant and more frequent in verse 23. You know, uh, Paul went through more so he could help those who go through some. And sometimes you go through much to help those who will go through it sometimes. And that's your shaping. And that's the way that God uses you here. You should not resist doing what you have been shaped for, however you were shaped. The second thing I want you to see about Paul in the basket was that Paul learnt dependence on others. You know, when you hang in a basket going outside the, I don't know how many stories the wall was, but you're not talking a four-foot fence. You're talking a wall big enough and large enough to repel invaders. Uh, as you hang in a basket like that, you know what? You're wholly dependent on those who hold the ropes. You're in a place where you're not, you can't take care of yourself. You're you can't, you can't do it yourself. You know, Saul of Tarsus was not accustomed to needing others. But now he was in a place where he was needing others. It happened at a moment, the height of his strength, when he was doing what he was strong at, arguing and alleging and proving and using his learning to point others to Christ. And uh, now Paul would learn uh, that there is weakness and that even in weakness there can be strength. You know, God may put us in a situation to show us that we do need others. Uh, no, no strong person, and there are strong men and strong ladies here, no strong person ever wants to be in a place where they're wholly dependent on another. 
most of us want to take care of ourselves. We, uh, you know, we uh, we want to we want to we don't we don't ever want to be in a place where we're, we're we're put in that situation. But you know, God took Paul and put him in a place like that, and uh, put him in a place where he was wholly dependent on those who were holding the ropes of the basket. And you might find in some time in your life that God puts you in a basket. And you might feel lots of things when that happens. You might feel it's a bit undignified. You might feel a little bit embarrassed. Uh, You might taste a little bit of humiliation in that. Uh, But because God has allowed it, you are in your basket and you are wholly reliant on those people holding the ropes. And sometimes God is just teaching you that we do need others in the family of God. We do do need others. And uh, and, uh, we we sometimes, uh, we just, you know, you're there. You know, if you're in the basket you can't also be holding the rope. Sometimes in life, God will ask you to hold the ropes. And sometimes you'll be in the basket. Sometimes, uh, I think in our culture, it needs to be said more often, uh, our children who grow up need to understand that uh, they come to a place where they need to be holding the ropes. Uh, I'm saying that our children as they grow up, it's, it's a given in most cultures except the West. It's a given in most cultures that as children grow up and become uh, strong and able and dependent, that they then uh, fall into the role of, of giving back to their parents who raised them and sacrificed for them and did everything for them. They're probably families in the church where sometimes there's a clash of culture because someone's come from one culture that understands that and someone's come from another culture where they don't do that. But I'm going to say to you that, 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 that it's, it's biblical that as you get older and you get weaker, the whole idea of your children being in the quiver, being your arrows, being your strength, uh, is that they are there for you in the day as you diminish. Uh, do you know that there are, there are more countries in the world that don't have aged care homes than do? You say, what, where do they stick their old people? <laughs> well, they don't, they don't stick their old people anywhere. The, the family uh, would never fathom such a thing. They, they take care of them. They just believe that's their duty. Do you know the whole Chinese nation, one point whatever billion... The young people there, they have, a, they have a Chinese word for it, but it speaks of uh, your filial, uh, filial duty, I think they say. I, I mispronounced the word, but the idea is it is your duty to take care of your parents. And I'm saying that that mindset it needs to be better taught to our children and, uh, and they need to understand that. And, uh, and uh, you might think, oh, no, no, I'm okay. I've got me super and I've got, me, I've got it planned out. I'm going to be okay. Uh, very easily God can put you in a basket where your super won't help you and your plans won't help you and your assets won't help you. You will need people. And when you need people, 
there can come a time where you, uh, you might be, have to hold the ropes. Young people uh, plan on that, that as you get older, part of your duty in serving God in life will be to hold the ropes for your parents sometimes. Uh, some of you don't have children. You're a bit older. Some of you don't have children to hold your ropes. And I'd like to say that we'd like to hold your ropes. I'd like to say that that's what church family is. I'd like to say that pastor has led us in that spirit. He's very caring. Uh, Many, many times I've been in his office and uh, seen his tears for those who are hurting. And it's not feigned. So uh, sometimes your church family will hold the ropes for you. Uh, Sometimes younger people in the church need to start holding the ropes and the elders of the church need to let them. The younger people need to, 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 to see this as your duty, that your time has come now and some, some are in the basket. Don't say they're basket cases. We won't, <laughs> we won't say that. But uh, they're in the basket and they need you to hold the ropes. And why don't you, why don't you take that upon yourself to do that? Why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you start using the words, younger people, my church, our church, my church, Oh, oh I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't think about leaving my church. Oh, no, that's our church. Oh, it would take God to show me to do that. No, no, I've got, my, my role will be to stay in our church. No, no, one day I'll have children and I want them to be sitting in our church. Uh, one day pastor and the others will be older and, and I've got to hold the ropes. What will happen if I'm not there and there's nobody to hold the ropes? And I'm saying there needs to be that mindset that there comes a time in our life where we need to, to, to hold the ropes. Uh, sometimes you'll be in the basket and sometimes you'll hold the ropes. Here's the closing thought. Sometimes you come in through a wide open door, but you leave via a window. Sometimes the will of God leads you through to something where, uh, you know, you went into it quite easily. And uh, you, uh, you, uh, it wasn't hard to get to where you got to. I've always said to people, it's easier to start something than to, for it to end. It's easier to hire than it is to fire. It's easier to get into a relationship than to get out of one. But sometimes we get led through an open door. No doubt Paul was led through an open door. But there are occasions when uh, we get also led out a window. And by that I mean is this, that, that God uh, will never lock you in a room of doom. There'll always be a way of escape. It may not be the escape you were looking for. It may not be quite the way that you think escape should come. But, it, but, but God has opened a window for you. And, uh, and uh, it's different. You didn't come in that way. Uh, you came in the gate thinking you were going to go out the gate. But that wasn't given to you, that. But God will never put you in a room with nowhere to go. He promises there'll always be a way of escape. And so sometimes it's a window. Sometimes we don't leave those rooms of doom because we have in our mind that if I'm not going out the door, I'm not going at all. And, uh, and we can stare, wondering what the way out is of our situation. How do I get out? How can I, 
How can I get back out the gates? And sometimes what God is saying is, you're not going out the same way you came in. There will, there will be a way for you to deal with this, uh, but it's not exactly how you were thinking. Uh, but it is my will, and, uh, and we'll use the journey of you going out in the basket. That's going to help a lot of people uh, in your life. So don't, don't, don't think there's no escape because there's no open door. Sometimes it's not a door, it's a window. And the window is a little more narrow space, but it's still the one that God provided. Well, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, may God bless those uh, scriptures to our heart. And, uh, and we'll have a song or whatever is scheduled. I'll lead us in a prayer. If your head is bowed, why don't you pray? I'd like young people, young people, you listen to me, uh, would you pray for your parents right now? Pray for your mother and your father. And would you just think about them for a moment and think about all they've done for you? And just thank God for them. And would you pray that as you get older, that in the same way that they've been there for you, that you will be there for them. Young people, pray for your parents right now. Thank God for what they've done for you and say, God, and young people, while you're praying, when you've prayed for your parents, uh, pray for your church and ask God to help you one day to be a faithful lady, a faithful man uh, in the church right up until Jesus comes. And ask God that he would help you to keep in your mind as you dream of your future and as you make plans for your life that you will always keep before you the importance of your church, the place where God brought you every Sunday where you heard the word of God and God breathed on you. And if you're a little bit older here today, I don't doubt that you've been through some things and there might be some things you've internalised that you don't feel comfortable talking to others about. And you might have wondered, well, how can any good come from that? I'd like you just to pray that whatever shape of vessel that you find yourself now, that God would just use that. And he would use it to help others. And there might be some who will reflect back on some times of humiliation and say, Lord, I can see that that now was something that that you've used, that, that, that was all part of the plan. And maybe tonight, uh, finally this morning, there are some who are in the room of doom and uh, you have been begging God for an open door. You've been begging God for this to get better, that you could just get out of this somehow and that open door has just not come and you just can't get past the guards at the gate I want you just to pray now and say, Lord, is there a window in the room I'm not seeing? Is there a window? And uh, would you have me just to humble myself that way? And just let God speak to your heart. The Holy Spirit is powerful to direct us. Uh, you'll hear more from God in church, like I said, than most places you'll go to in any given week. May the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. The Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd move amongst us. Uh, as the wind. I pray that you'd walk up and down between the pews now.
pray that you'd make haste to the particularly fervent prayers that are going on right now. Rush to them, Lord, and uh, breathe on them. Put your anointing on those. Uh, Lord, uh, those that uh, are crying for help, Lord, uh, come along beside them and uh, come up and down the aisle, Lord, and in and out the pews and and move around as you would and just speak to us and help us. We we thank you. Uh, We marvel at your word and just how rich it is for us. Bless us. Thank you for our pastor. Thank you for his family. Thank you for all the good ways you've used him to strengthen us. Bless him. Uh, Bless those here today who are suffering. Help us, we pray. Hear the prayers that have gone up today from sincere hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.